Assalamu alaikum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everybody um, to an amazing Saturday session on our first day of Ramadan. I'm so excited to welcome everybody. It's very special because we actually have some wonderful guests in the house. We have kind of a full house tonight, so thank you. It's, it's really nice when you feel the sense of community, um, especially kicking off Ramadan. Um, and I, I pray, inshallah, that this will be a really blessed month. Um, you know, we, we had a really um, powerful khutbah yesterday, as always, um, where the sheikh, you know, reminded us, as we often hear, you know, about the benefits of this month and, you know, the opportunities. And I thought what was especially striking, which I've never heard anywhere else, was the idea that, you know, we have this opportunity to think about what parts of us are actually creating a shaitan. You know, we often hear this sort of silly um, reference to, oh, during the month of Ramadan, all the demons are shackled and all the shaitans are shackled. But we obviously know that that's not true when you look around and see what's happening in the world. But it was really interesting to hear this perspective that, you know, what if we have the opportunity to create our own shaitan every time we give in to our egos or we do something selfish? and that that shaitan can actually accompany us because as we know, the shaitan you know, promised that um, that shaitan would be an avowed enemy for us. And so it's a really important time to really think about looking at ourselves deeply and what, you know, questioning what is our shaitan and how do we ourselves actually shackle that shaitan because if we want to pursue the path to the Lord, our shaitan can't come with us. So it's a really powerful khutbah. If you didn't have a chance to watch it, I really highly recommend it. Very, um, very important for the start of the month. Um, and, you know, if you don't have time to watch, then for sure, um, you know, we will have our, our summary in our weekly email next week, inshallah. Um, so we, alhamdulillah, we had a lot of content come out this week, and so I just wanted to highlight some of it. Um, and some of it's sort of unexpected. Like, you know, um, Sheikh is teaching a class uh, this semester at the law school called Muslims, Race, and Law. And um, he had an amazing session on Wednesday where he talked about the history. Um, I mean, someone described it as like a master class of sort of the, the history and the racialization of Muslims in America and just how all of these different elements come together to create this this picture. So you know, you you factor in politics, colonialism, social factors, racism, classism, and all of that, and bringing it all together as a symphony where it really strikes you, like, oh my God, okay, I get it. You know, this is how all the, the pieces fit together. And um, what was really striking to me is how it really kind of touches on all the things that we talk about here too. And so there's this sort of synchronicity between what's taught in the law school, um, you know, at uh, during Muslims, Race, and Law to what we're talking about here in the Quran Halakas to the things that are being talked about in the khutbah. And it really just underscores just that, that power of knowledge and how everything is connected. And then for, you know, personally, like when I understand things it, and things make sense, I feel more empowered and I feel like, okay, now I can start to understand this craziness in the world and maybe I can actually do something about it. Um, and so it's, we wanted to then share that clip of Muslims, Race, and Law and so people could see you know, even like sometimes there's this idea that, oh, you have a persona as a, as a professor in a law school, but then you have this other persona as an imam or a mullah or something as you're talking about religious things, you know, in the khutbah or in, you know, the Quran. And no, actually you see that there's this incredible continuity and, and connection between all of these things. They all fit together. And for, for us as Muslims that are looking for an ethical path forward, you know, this is important for us to, you know, live as a, as a whole human being. And I know certainly like as a convert, you often struggle with this sort of like double life. You know, you have like this one life as a convert or as a Muslim, and then that's separate from your life in the secular world. And I think what's powerful about what we teach here and what we talk about here is that's not the case. It's all one thing, and that's, you know, going to be your source of empowerment and that knowledge. Um, 
So uh, if you want to check out what it feels like to be in a law school class, um, definitely check that out. Um, and then um, also we had a really, really wonderful clip. We had some visitors here from Indonesia and had the opportunity to walk through the library. And there's this one volume that Sheikh often points out, which is so valuable. It's a collection of, um, of I guess it's like articles or something from Palestine. I'm not even exactly sure. But it's kind of like a, a multi-volume work that documents what life was like prior to Palestine um, being you know, taken over by Israel or being occupied by Israel. And it, it documents a lot of um, you know the conversations that were taking place before I guess 1967, and it's a very For, valuable source. 40, 48. Oh, 40, 40, Excuse me. Um, and um, so he tells the story about how he um, acquired this source and um, how he had to um, negotiate with this bookseller because there was someone who was offering double the price. And that something in this whole um, exchange, um, you know, it was an Israeli buyer that he was competing against. And in this exchange, he started tearing and, you know, was thinking about, like, you know, if the Israeli buyer takes this source, they could destroy it and we never see it again. And it's so valuable. And something clicked, alhamdulillah, Allah inspired this merchant who really didn't care about any of this history to say, okay, fine, you can have it. So um, it was a really, really powerful clip. So it was just uh, one of these behind the scenes things. and. Um, Thank you, Ramin, for capturing that because it's really, really important. But um, just again, to give you a highlight of what, what happens behind the scenes here. Um, and you know, just in general, I mean, I, I'm, so, um, I, I'm so touched. Like I, I keep receiving emails from people that um, honestly are, they're heartwarming. You know, we started this journey like over a year ago. Um, we didn't have any videos up about the Quran. You know, we didn't, um, we were just kind of doing monthly halakas and stuff. And every so often people would write us and tell us, you know, thank you for the work you're doing. Um, I feel like I'm finally discovering that my religion makes sense. You know, you're changing how I feel about my faith. And I feel like, you know, now we have so many more videos that have come on, you know, the scene. Even if you just do a Google search on a suli, you'll just get like a whole smattering of emails, I mean, of, uh, of links. Um, and it's powerful. Um, Certainly for increasing, like, from the Muslim perspective, you know, from the AI perspective, artificial intelligence, you know, we have then now more positive stuff online. So I'm actually really proud of that. But then more people are also finding us. And we're discovering that there are so many people who have the same story. Like, they feel very lonely. They feel really disenchanted, really, you know, upset about the Muslim you know, situation um, about what they get at the, you know, at the mosque. And then they're so happy that they somehow have come upon the Suli Institute. Like I had one woman who wrote and said, you know, I've, I asked God to guide me to, you know, the right way. I found the Suli Institute and found your videos. I started binge watching. So now I don't binge watch Netflix. I binge watch you guys. <laughs> so, but you know, it's a, um, it's a really lovely thing when over time, you start feeling like it's almost, I was trying to describe it to someone yesterday, it's like a neuro map of, you know, if you, if you map like the world, like a neuro passage or something like that, you imagine they're like individuals around the world that feel lonely and then they feel connected because of what they're, they're getting here. And I think that that, even that sense of community is, is just, it's so powerful and I, I'm so grateful that, you know, um, so, you know, I just want to encourage people if, you know, please feel free to reach out, let us know. We actually, we don't know um, what people's reaction is unless they reach out. And, and when they do, it's often, it's so touching. And so thank you. Thank you so much. And, and I pray, inshallah, that, that this community grows and that, you know, people find a lot of strength and, um, you know, and companionship, at least, you know, through the, the work we do here, inshallah. Um, and lastly, I thought I would share, I mean, I'm kind of, I was sort of 
thinking about whether I should share this or not because it's kind of a downer for the first day of Ramadan, but it's something that, that just has to be said. So you know that we're doing a matching gift program campaign on LaunchGood, and we're so excited because we have some really generous donors who offered to match our donations during the month of Ramadan up to $40,000. And so um, we created a campaign on LaunchGood, and we identified it as Zakat eligible. And so recently, we just got notification that, sorry, thank you so much, but your, um, actually your, your campaign has not been approved as Zakat verified because of the following. And it's a blank space. There's like nothing there. There's no reason actually given. And then it says that, you know, if you don't agree with this, you can appeal it and, um, you know, then our Zakat team will review it. So um, our amazing volunteer um, and you know community member, and also I should say then they give you a link to their Zakat policy, which connects you to Surat Talba, verse, verse 60. And it says, okay, so from the above verse, here are the eight categories of Zakat. First, the poor and needy, those collecting Zakat. Three, to soften hearts. Four, in slavery. Five, those in debt. Six, in the cause of Allah. And seven, the traveler. And so, um, we don't fit um, in the cause of Allah doing a tafsir of the Quran. So we thought, okay, um, so Rafida um, wrote this really beautiful email in response and gave me permission to read it, so I thought I would share it. So she wrote to the Zakat team, um, Salamu alaikum, today we received a denial of our campaign's Zakat eligibility. I am emailing to respectfully request reconsideration. Here's our campaign link. I reviewed your Zakat policy and our organization, the Suli Institute, for which we are fundraising, clearly meets your policy standards for Zakat eligibility for two reasons. Our organization's mission's work is aimed at, one, softening the hearts, and two, in Allah's path. First, in addition to giving Friday khutbahs, our organization, Sheikh, is doing weekly deep dives into the Quran through intensive halakhas. These actions preserve its listeners' belief in Islam and has even resulted in our Sheikh having the honor of taking many shahadas from converts who converted because of the Suli's nonprofit work. Second, our organization's work proliferates Islam. Again, our organization's work speaks to the masses, softens hearts towards Islam, combats Islamophobia, thus preserving Islam's followers, and inspires converse, conversions, etc. As a personal testament to my claims that the Asuli meets your Zakat eligibility policy, I hereby swear that I am Muslim because of the Asuli Institute's work. Two years ago, I found the organization and then began participating in their Friday khutbahs. Though raised Muslim in name only, I had never attended a Jummah before. At some point later, I began volunteering in the organization. It is because of their work that I am still Muslim and had never, um, I'm still Muslim. Because of their mission work, my faith in Islam has become genuine and solid. They also taught me to pray. Although raised Muslim, I never learned to pray and had never prayed before. Since August 26, 2020, I have prayed five times a day, every day, alhamdulillah, because of the Asuli Institute. These examples clearly demonstrate that the Asuli Institute's work softens hearts, is in the way of Allah, and proliferates Islam, thus meeting your zakat eligibility policy. Please let me know if you need any additional information to consider this eligibility. So the response was one line. Walaikum salam. I'm afraid the cost of publication as mentioned in the campaign does not qualify as zakat eligible according to our policy. You can still raise sadaqah for this noble work. 
So, and then, um, so Rafita wrote back again, um, thank you for your response. Please kindly explain to me how costs to publish 100% Islamic khutbahs and halakhas, proceeds of which are directly returned to the organization, are not zakat eligible. In other words, please kindly explain how disseminating Islamic information to the public in book form, which costs money to do, is not zakat eligible. Logically, books are a medium through which masses can be reached, and thus through mass outreach, initiatives such as these, many hearts can be softened, and these efforts are in the way of Allah per your zakat policy. Please, lastly, point, uh, point me to the exact language, specific sentences in your zakat policy under which you are basing your denial. So no response from that. And then I just, I kicked it up to the, the CEO today. So, and here's my, my response to them. So, assalamu alaikum rahmatullah, Ramadan Mubarak. I wanted to call your attention to the email exchange below between your Zakat team and our team member, Rafida. Um, we are a 501c3 nonprofit education organization that is attempting to raise funds for the publication of the first original contribution to our, to the, to our tafsir literature in over 40 years. At the Asuli Institute, we have been engaged in an intensive immersion into the deeper meanings, uh, meanings of every single surah of the Quran with all of our education events available for free on our YouTube channel. We have covered 73 surahs to date and will likely conclude our 74th this evening, inshallah. We are in the process of transcribing, editing, and ultimately publishing this entire tafsir collection, inshallah. We do this in the cause of Allah so that Muslims can know the deeper meaning of God's magnificent book. We have been told twice now that this project is not zakat eligible, which is simply incorrect from an Islamic jurisprudential perspective, not to mention from a common sense perspective. Our founder and Islamic jurist, Sheikh Khaled Abul Fadl, can verify this point if your, zakat your, if your zakat scholars are unable. I apologize for bringing this error to your attention. However, it is simply too huge of an error to go unaddressed. If you need more information, we are happy to provide it. Wishing you and yours a blessed and elevating Ramadan. Thank you so much for your consideration. They have two uh, Zakat scholars that they identify um, that uh, assess all of these. Um, the first one is um, Sheikh Joe Bradford. He's an entrepreneur and American scholar of Islam. He holds a master's of Islamic law from the University of Medina and has studied traditionally in the Muslim world for the past 20 plus years. Sheikh Joe is the author of The Simple Zakat Guide. Sheikh Joe is LaunchGood's Zakat project product advisor and verifies eligibility of Zakat campaigns. And secondly, Sheikh Yasser Birjaz. He's the Imam of the Valley Ranch Islamic Center. He graduated as valedictorian with highest honors from the University of Medina. He's an expert in fiqh, usul, and financial literacy, and he verifies the eligibility of Zakat campaigns at LaunchGood. So just to testify that it fired us up and <laughs> made us really upset because if you uh, cannot raise funds to support the publication of a tafsir of Quran in the sake of Allah, I, I honestly really don't know quite what to say. Um, so, you know, um, Sheikh and I, of course, I, I went to Sheikh and we were flabbergasted, but we started, you know, looking at books, all the schools of thought from, you know, from the most elementary books you know, support that this is something that is zakat eligible. But um, so it just underscores, you know, again, like the state of where we are as Muslims. And it's it's sad and it's, it's disappointing. Um, but, you know, again, it's like, honestly, like I'm so tired of us being like this. This is ridiculous. It's time for us to stand up and to call out things that are really ridiculous 
do it politely, do it with, you know, respect and dignity, but stand our ground. Because I think it's been too long that things like this pass. And I, I wonder, were they hoping that this would just get swept under the rug? You know, it's it's sad because Launch Good is, you know, a campaign, it's a, a crowdfund, a crowd, you know, fundraising campaign or, or platform that is just geared for Muslims. And the reason why we have a presence on there, and I've always felt it was important for us to be on Launch Good, is one, to support that, um, because they are successful, um, and two, to give us the opportunity, like they have a really nice thing during Ramadan where you can actually give them money and then they will donate, you know, every day over the course of Ramadan and, you know, spread that to, to worthy causes. Um, and, you know, I, I want that the Suli Institute has an opportunity to, to benefit from that, too, because I feel like what we're doing is extremely important. You know, I don't want to just poo-poo on Launch Good, and, I, you know, that email I wrote was to the CEO because maybe he's not aware, and maybe, you know, that was just something that was handled at a much lower level and that they, you know, in all good intention, you know, thought that, okay, they just didn't get the connection that, you know, publishing a tefsir is part of something that could fit into Zakat. But it just, you know, again, highlights a lot of, of, of things that, that we're backwards on and that we need to be educated on. And so I, you know, I wanted to bring this to everyone's attention. I'm not saying, you know, uh, to, to, to be continued, you know, I will share more about what's happening. But I just, um, it is, our program is Zakat eligible. And so please do, if you, if you, you know, are interested, if you only can choose between, you know, a Zakat eligible program and not know that by supporting ours, you actually are, um, you know, you are giving your Zakat. So I just wanted to clarify that for anyone who's concerned. Um, and inshallah, may, may this, you know, um, month be a, a source of all of us increasing our knowledge, um, increasing our blessings and, you know, and standing up for justice and, and you know, and education where, where necessary. So um, thank you for listening. That was a long a lot that I read, but I appreciate you you listening and inshallah make prayers for us, please. So look forward to another amazing session. Um, hopefully inshallah we'll, we're, we're aiming to finish Surah al Nisa tonight, which would be incredible. But take your time, please don't rush. وعلى آله وأصحابه وعلى وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين. Which ayah did we? 
interpretive possibilities, it is open, it is an, it's an, uh, uh, the, the texture of the surah is, supports a continuing, open, evolving meaning. But uh, we'll come, uh, we'll come back to this. Um, I'll just I'll, I'll say two quick words about this zakat eligibility stuff. Um, you know, th this is uh, it again, again and again points to the consistent problem of look at the the Islam that has been supported and generated and produced by, by in countries like Morocco, Egypt, Saudi, the Emirat, uh, 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 religious institutions that are embedded in authorita authoritarian political structures, authoritarian social structures, and civis in structures that are civis civiliz civilizationally, from a civil civilizational perspective, uh, very reactionary. The, the the thinking the thinking is mechanic and didactic and incapable of uh, of any type of analytical application. Which I mean, even if people have the best intentions, the those trained in places like Medina. Um, just cannot cannot imagine the texture of uh, of interpretation in Islamic jurisprudence, their 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 exposure to sources, and the tradition itself is so limited. So typically in Islamic jurisprudence, although Surah Tawbah talks about the sadaqat, but for it's a long story we don't need to get into. That in Islamic jurisprudence, they said, well, Surah At-Tawbah, Ayah 60, verse 60, does it, it's not talking about sadaqat, it's talking about zakat. That, that is, let's say, an upper level issue. That's, you know, after years and years of studying jurisprudence, we might discuss whether that's a valid interpretive move that took place hundreds of years ago or not. But anyway. So then the, the, the ayah itself in, in Surah At-Tawbah, it, it sets, it, it clearly says that the sadaqat go to al-fuqara wal-masakeen and this category, the, the poor, the needy, al-mu'allafat um, uh, al-qulubihim, those whose um, favor you, uh, well, I'll, talk, I'll mention this in a second. Okay, so, and 
wayfarers or travelers, displaced human beings, uh, freeing slaves. So the categories that are, you know, obvious is, and there's always discussion about who, who is a faqir and who is a maskeen, who qualifies as a poor person, and at what level of need do you need before a person becomes, any typical juristic discussions can, what if you're, you're, the poor person is your relative, what if the poor person is your husband, what if, etc., etc. I mean, all these discussions. But then those who, those whose qulub are mu'allafa, historically, it, it was referring to a category of people that you help financially or you spend money in order, A, to win their favor so that they won't join your enemies and fight against you, or B, so that you can win them over morally and ethically. So that, in other words, by, by coming and, and helping them, uh, you, you, they become, they have a good impression of Islam and their heart tenderizes. That's where the expression tenderizing the heart comes from. Now, of course, that develops and then we come to this historical point. So through, this develops throughout our Islamic history. There are tons of fatawa that talk about, you know, well, if if you, um, if there are people who are not Muslim but in need or have a debt or have some type of problem, where you you come to their aid financially. Uh, Hoping that by by doing so, that their that at least their their they, their hearts will open up, and that they will be willing to listen and learn about Islam and so on. This is sort of what the juristic debates are about for centuries, but then we come to this moment where we have Islamophobia. And. The the mildly ishtihadi issue. It's a mild ishtihad issue. It's not a complex or difficult ishtihad issue. If you, if your expenditures will go to fighting Islamophobia, can this fall under ta'rif al-qulub? If you are trained in the mechanical ways that the, the mechanical training the often very didactic, structured, literalist, uh, hardly analytical training that you receive in Medina, you can't even think from, you can't even think through the illa and apply, you know, al-illa taduru ma'an wujudan wa'adaman. You can't apply an operative cause from a former president to a new president because you don't even know, you don't even train in isolating the operative cause in a hukm and understanding the difference between a hikmah and between a illa and all this stuff. But 
the other category, which in Ayat al-Tawbah says very clearly, fi sabilillah, that zakah, and under in Islamic jurisprudence, you have tons of fatawa from the time of the Prophet to, you know, easily 1400 years of history, that uh, zakah can go to support jihad. And, uh, you know, any jihad that is truly in Allah's way, uh, zakah can support jihad. And, you know, then jurists get into details. Well, you know, you can, zakat can go to buy horses, zakat can go to buy weapons, zakat. And there emerged the obvious question early on in Islamic history. What if the jihad that you are confronting is not a jihad with horses and swords, but jihad of talabul ilm, seeking knowledge? Why was this an issue? Because... The Islamic civilization was all about knowledge, and there were dozens and dozens and of students floating all around in every period of Islamic history that needed funding. And so it became a, a, a recurring issue. Well, can people support these students using their zakat? And the remarkable thing is the Malikis, the Shafi'is, the Hanbalis, the Ja'faris, and the late Hanafis, the early Hanafis said no. Then later on changed their opinion. All said, yes, the, that's a legitimate jihad. So it, it just, I mean, it, again, it, what, is the, what is the future of Islamic law? What is the future of Sharia? When we see this pattern. People either go to Mauritania or Morocco or Medina and they come back. Their head is as pig-headed and as um, unimaginative and unanalytical as the intellectual stance that resulted in Islam becoming a very backward civilization. I mean, think, think of how unremarkable this is. We get converts from where people have created the civilization that dominates the world. And we take these converts and we program them with the epistemological categories of the civilization that is at in the bottom of the of the world it is confounding and haram of course the reason this happens is because there is no local there, there is no local genuine indigenous production of analytical thinking of Islamic law or Islamic philosophy or Islamic theology. In other words, it's, it's like um, someone that I know who converted and now, now has converted back to Christianity and when you know, asked, why, why have you gone back to Christianity? Well, you know, because this guy went to study in the, the typical study in the Middle East and so on. And just the 
you do, effectively what he's saying is that he got tired of living in a fictional world of stupidity when when dealing with Islamic law. Everything becomes unintelligent and unanalytical, but it's not the Islamic tradition. It's not the juristic tradition that's like that. It is the individuals that are trained in this tradition in this day and age. It's sad. I mean, I'm not involved, obviously, in fundraising and stuff like that, and so, you know, but it's just sad. It's really sad. Oh, what time is it? Okay, so let's... um, so, because I, inshallah, I'm going to be summarizing the entire Surah Al Nisa, maybe just to, to get us up to speed from where we left off. Remember. We reach the point where Surah An-Nisa focuses on the 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 phenomena of nifaq of hypocrisy, and I will emphasize, inshallah, in in the summary, the sort of the flow of the surah from law to the recipients of law, those who receive the law and are charged with witnessing the law. And witnessing the law is not just that you receive it, but you you do right by the law. And as we will see, doing right by the law is impossible unless you uphold the ethics of the law. That in itself requires what the Quran constantly uh, sets out or structures as treating the ailments of the heart. But it's but when you reflect upon how it addresses what are ailments of the heart. So, for instance, when it describes those who are afraid to support justice or to testify for justice or to uphold justice, even if it is against themselves or against their loved ones. In the Quranic imagination, the, the, the ailments of the heart are inseparable from, well, how do I put it, intellectual cowardliness. So it, 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 is, it, it could also be that, or intellectual uh, failure of shahada because of failure in perceptive abilities. 
So intellectual failures that result from lack of diligence in applying the intellect. Put it differently, nifaq itself can result because one is egotistical and in love with the self and is effectively a, 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 a someone who lies to themselves or lies to others. But nifaq can also be a moral failure that results from ignorance and lack of commitment and lack of intellectual honesty. We'll come back to this in the summary because I think it becomes clearer when we look at, we take the, the we step back and we take an overall look at Surah Nisa. Okay. And so, and notice when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is talking about the, the who are the munafiqun. The munafiqun are those who, whether because of emotional reasons or because of intellectual reasons or because of both, whether their hearts are feeble or their intellects are feeble, the, the, the end result is they say, we want we want to believe in some and we want to take some and leave some. Taking some and leaving some is not just, you know, uh, someone who is um, weak in faith, but it also uh, could be because someone is intellectually lazy or intellectually incapable, or intellectually ignorant. Right before we are told about the, or right before the ailment of nifaq in its selectivity is emphasized, Surah An-Nisa emphasizes our understanding of justice itself and shahada lillah bearing witness for Allah and upholding justice justice is sometimes betrayed because people know that what they're doing is unjust and they don't care because they're selfish because they're thieves because they're liars because they're cheaters But even more often, or what is far more uh, current, is that justice is betrayed because of failure of diligence in understanding justice and implementing justice. So, I'll give you another example because we Muslims sometimes just have these mental blocks. So Allah tells us, Okay, you must 
be persistent in the pursuit of justice. Let's take an example. Some let's pretend today, this this day and age, we are confronting the issue of whether an accused person person who is confronting criminal charges, criminal charges that could lead to this person's imprisonment or execution, or even possibly charges that could lead to this person's bankruptcy. And you have the practical question of, is this person entitled to an attorney? Now, you have a very you have a very practical issue. Do we betray al quwama bil qist? Do we betray justice if we fail to provide an attorney, or do we not betray justice if we fail to provide an attorney? Well, how are you going to answer this question? It is possible that you are not providing an attorney because you have ill intentions towards this person. You want this person to be convicted and you want this person to be destroyed. And thus, you say, no, we shouldn't provide an attorney. But that's that's the exception. That's not the rule. It could very well be that you say, no, providing an attorney is not necessary because your relationship to justice belongs to a very different time, a very different social reality, a very different economic reality, a very different political reality. So even today, and these are, you know, from, from experience, there are people in, in Saudi Arabia, there's, they, eventually they came to the conclusion that you no know, attorney should be provided in criminal proceedings. But a lot of the quda sitting on the bench are not convinced that an attorney is mandated by Islamic conceptions of justice. And so we'll restrict, when it comes to actual application of the law, we'll restrict the access between a criminal defendant and his attorney, and especially in trials where defendants are accused of heretical beliefs, like Salman al-Oda right now, for instance, or like Hassan Farhan al-Maliki or something like that. And they will effectively have an attorney on record, but not allow the defendant any access or very limited access to the attorney. Is this judge's relationship to justice a relationship of nifaq or not? When a judge sends someone to their death, like the 81 that were executed in Saudi Arabia, Many of these 81 who were Shia, one of them was 13 years old, before their execution, they they hardly spent 20 minutes 
some some of the reports is that not even five minutes with the lawyer with a lawyer that was assigned to their case. That some of the reports that came out is that they were allowed to speak in their defense no more than five minutes before they were sentenced to death. Now, let's assume that the judge is a pious person. Yeah, the judge fasts Ramadan, prays, you know, but he's been trained in Medina, and this is his understanding of justice. You're a Shi'i, after all. So the judge says, Do you, are you a Shi'i? Yes, I'm a Shi'i. Are you an Ethnic Ashari? Yes, I'm an Ethnic Ashari. Um, don't you want to do Tawbah? Don't you realize, you know, do you accept Muawiyah as your as, as Sahabi and Imam and Radiallahu anhu? No, I don't accept Muawiyah. Okay, sentence to death. Is this judge a Munafiq in, re- in his relation to justice or not? I would submit to you the answer is yes. The answer clearly is yes. He is a munafiq. But he's not a munafiq because he doesn't pray or because he you know, skips prayers or he doesn't. He is a munafiq because he has betrayed justice itself and has betrayed justice because of the failure of diligence in studying justice within the demands of time, space, and place. This is critical. This is critical because, and I'll show you how the entire edifice of Surah An-Nisa would fall apart if you don't have that understanding of why Allah keeps talking to us about nifaq in Surah An-Nisa. Time and time again, Allah keeps coming back to this issue and say, basically saying, don't you dare when I, in, in, I am giving you examples of legal reform, don't you dare be plagued by nifaq because if you do, you will fail. And the tendency of so many Muslims is to say, yeah, well, he's just talking about, Allah's just talking about lack of piety. You know, he's just talking about uh, some type of lack of iman. But that's, you know, there are, there are witnesses that fail in their duty of witnessing, not because of a lack of sincerity, but of, because of methodological failures that reach the level of malfeasance or, or actual uh, betrayal of duty. So, for instance, you know, if, if I, I can't see well without eyeglasses, right? And I see someone committing a murder, and I put, I, you know, I'm a, let's say I'm the type of Muslim that understands, oh, my Allah expects me now to witness this correctly because I need to testify as to who the murderer is. And then I think to myself, well, I can't see without my eyeglasses, but, you know, I think to myself, ah, it doesn't matter. I'll just go with it. 
And I base my testimony on what I perceived without my eyeglasses, knowing that methodologically, I was under an obligation to go grab my eyeglasses. That's nefaq. That's failing justice. Not because you are not committed, but, but because of other process-oriented failures towards justice. And I submit to you that among the huge categories in this regard is that as all, I mean, what built the Islamic civilizations is that our forefathers understood that there are categories like justice, like beauty, like, um, um, like um, uh, equity that, that need to be understood within the prevalent epistemological paradigms of the day and age in which they live. That is why Muslims were reading Aristotle and reading uh, the, the, the Persian philosophers and reading whatever wisdom, hikmah, they could uh, attain. Nowadays, you can't think about justice unless you engage the systems of knowledge that shape the modern mind vis-a-vis -vis justice. Any modern person today, maybe you know, 800 years ago or 600 years ago, it was possible to sentence someone to death, maybe, I mean, without a wakil. There are a million different reasons, including the way society was structured and the way economies worked and the way communities were and the way families were, the way clans were, and so on and so forth, that someone can be expected to just speak for himself in court or herself. But the consciousness of even the most illiterate human being in today's world And the way that the modern human is brought up in today's world, the irony is that often they wouldn't be able to engage the, the processes of law without expert representation or expected to do so would be fundamentally unfair unless you have a very traditional society in which everyone knows everyone and in which you know, that, that resemble the, the, anyway. But even, by the way, even in, in urban Islamic law, and clearly after the fourth century, even, I mean, the, the discussions on wakil and wukala and hukm and the, the, the people who represent you in court uh, is, is little known and is among the, the, the many ignored chapters in Islamic law. Okay, so let's move on then. So then, from Nifaq, Surah Al-Nisa makes its final movement. And its final movement It's again nuanced, and 
maybe the so first let's to to approach it more systematically let's um So notice, go first to verse 162. So 162, but for those among them who are deeply rooted in knowledge and the believers who believe in that which has been bestowed upon you from on high as well as that bestowed from on high before you and those who are constant in prayer, spend in charity, and all who believe in God and the last day, these it is unto whom we shall grant a mighty reward. So in 162, we are heading towards the, the Quranic statement that reaffirms the idea that not not according to your wishes or the wishes of the people of the book. Salvation is Allah's business. And why is it, why is the lacking but there? Because it is talking about those, the, the beliefs of people of the book that are problematic and erroneous. And I'll come back to this in a second. But it underscores that there are from those from the people of the book, among the people of the book, Who are rasikhuna fil ilmi minhum from among them, those who are embedded in knowledge from among them. Well mu'minuna and the conjunction where well mu'minuna and the believers. It is and I know that this is not the traditional position, but but look at the text again, that the ayah equates those among the people of the book who are truly embedded, seeped in knowledge, and believers, i.e. Muslims. If They, their attitude towards Muhammad is reverential. They, they rec- while they're not Muslim, but they recognize that this is a messenger from God. 
We have reports of several people who tell the Prophet who sort of, um, whoever do the seerah, we'll talk about it. Anyway, who tell, tell the Prophet that, by God, we know you are a messenger. But for whatever reason, they refuse to convert. They refuse to, to, to become Muslim and they remain Christian or remain Jews, Jewish. The commonality between them and the believers is that they pray, they pay alms, in, in fact, they help the poor, and they believe in, all, in Allah and believe in the hereafter. So this is an exception. Now, an exception from what? So now let's backtrack and go back to 151. We've talked plenty about the relationship between the, or the, at least the, the, the sense of solidarity that some of the munafiqun, especially the, the, the vocal dissenting party in Medina, had from its relation, their relationship with Jews and Christians in Medina. That they would often, as we, as we talked about, seek them out, uh, socialize with them, uh, sort of uh, uh, sit together criticizing the Quran or criticizing the Prophet, etc., etc., in all the acts of dissent that we, we've talked about. And then it goes, Surah An Nisa addresses what was a consistent theme brought up in these conversations that Surah An-Nisa describes as لا خير في كثير من نجواهم that so much of what they talk about is just toxic because in many of these conversations a point of consistent sort of casting doubt upon the prophecy of Muhammad is that Jews and Christians, and especially the Jew among the, the Jewish clans, are tell the the the, the dissenters, the munafiqun, consistently tell them, well, you know, our prophet, whether Jesus or Moses, did you know did the following miracles? Jesus brought down, you know. A whole list of the, the whole list of well-known miracles of Jesus. Moses brought, you know, did X, Y, and Z. And where are the miracles of Muhammad? And maybe I, I don't know. If, 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 I actually some Islamophobes and some of the evangelists. I actually read in evangelical literature, modern evangelical literature, um, that. You know, in that when you try to convert Muslims, among the things you emphasize is look. You know, even Islam admits that Jesus had all these miracles, while Muhammad didn't have all these miracles. So doesn't that tell you something about, you know? So actually, so it's still a, a it's still a valid it's still a point that's raised. Subhanallah. 
And but it is raised in the context of supporting and perpetuating dissent against the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. So, you know, we are we from we are telling you from a biblical perspective. If you have doubts that this is a real prophet, well, your doubts are well-founded because indeed he is lacking in miracles. And this is the context of 153. One of the most fascinating things for me is that The Al-Kitab, the history did not preserve for us who, the name of, of the individuals. But uh, one of the, the, the significant points for Surah An-Nisa that they raise in bolstering the opposition of Al-Munafiqoon is that they say, look, why is this Quran being revealed piecemeal? Every part, remember I told you that part of the complaints of the, of, of the dissenters is that, you know, first there was the hijrah, and then after the hijrah there was ta'alif al-qulub, and then after ta'alif al-qulub there was the, the battle of Badr and the revelation surrounding the battle of Badr, and then battle of Uhud and the revelation surrounding the battle of Uhud. And then now in Surah An-Nisa, all these social reforms that the Quran are coming demanding, and the, the response, why doesn't God just reveal the divine writ in one full swoop? Why this incremental process? And this is why, so you look at, when you look at 153, it says, They say, why don't you just bring down the revelation from, from heavens all in one full swoop? This points to something that is fascinating, is that even the Muslims themselves and non-Muslims notice the incrementalism of the Quran and had to ponder why the Quran comes, why would God choose to say, God heard this question and God is responding to this question, or God waits until a problem unfolds for God to address that problem. And isn't this incrementalism evidence, I mean, from a, a theological perspective, evidence of that Allah's, Allah's continued speech. But if Allah has continued speech in response to eventualities and circumstances, does this then cast doubt about Allah's absoluteness? If Allah is in any way conditional and circumstantial, or in any way responsive to 
responds to conditions and circumstances. Does this negate the idea of Allah's utter immutability and absoluteness? And on this point, Christians, and we have said, well, this is precisely why the idea of uh, the, the idea of Allah, uh, the, the idea of Trinity in itself is necessary because part of the part of the deity is absolute and immutable. And part of the deity is, in fact, evolving and engaging and circumstantial. So their solution is that the Father is eternal, immutable, unchanging. While the Son, the Holy Ghost, there's endless debates in Christian theology about it. But at least the, the Son is sort of the, 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 the contingent one. And this is why you have the response in, hold on, um, yeah, no, uh, which, uh, yeah. This is why in 171, that response, Ya ahli kitab, la taghlu fi dinakum, wa la taghulu ala Allah illa al-haq. Innama al-Masih wa Isa ibn Maryam, Rasulullah wa kalimatuhu, alqaha ila Maryam wa ruhun minh, fa'aminu billah wa rusli, wa la taghulu thalatha, intahu khayran lakum, innama Allahu ilahun wahid, subhanah, an yakuna lahu waladun lahu ma fi al-samawati wa ma fi al-ardu wa kafa billahi wakila. So this is 171. This is where, why you find in Surah An-Nisa Allah responding to the issue of Trinity. And I'll say more about 171 in a second, but let's step back again. So I don't forget anything. Okay. So... So in 153, that responding to the issue of incrementum, incrementalism, and the response of, I mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but the response is, is fascinating because it's, the response is to turn the gaze at human frailties in the way that they impute human intellectual categories upon the divine. So Allah responds to this by saying, well, you know, they, they said worse than this. When they told Moses, we need to see 
Allah, in order to believe in Allah, we need to see God. I don't know how, I'm worried that words will fail me, but the same spiritual ailment that says, I need to see God, to believe in God, is one and the same as the spiritual ailment that says, I need to see God respond to injustice in the way that I see as absolute and perfect. It is, maybe in, in Sufi-esque terms, it is a type of egoism that is neither in touch with reality nor with justice. Yet it's easy to say, give me a full comprehensive program for justice, absolute justice, right now. It's easy because it's also superficial. Grand theories of justice that dot all the letters that look like perfect mathematical equations are also sometimes, quite, I'm not, quite often, not sometimes, but quite often, are exactly how you simply shoot, like you're shooting overboard, like you completely miss the mechanics of justice. Because mechanics of justice is about process. It's not about well-packaged absolute categories. It's the same impatience of the soul, ill-temperament of the intellect. And then, so, which says, and this is in, in, this has always struck me that it says, so فقد سألوا موسى أكبر من ذلك فقالوا أرنا الله جهرة فأخذتهم الصاعقة بظلمهم. They, they, well, they've told Moses before, show us God. We want to see God. So they were destroyed because of their injustice. In the same way that believing in God without seeing God requires an elevated soul, requires purification, understanding that justice is not about tight philosophies, coherent, co comprehensive theoretical constructs that sound... That, um, in a word, utopian. Understanding that justice is about process requires an elevated intellect. Elevated soul and an elevated intellect. Now, 
the rest in 154 and 155 and on to remember the, in 157 this is just so Um, okay, so remember that part of the polemics going on where Jewish tribes are involved, dissenters are involved, quote-unquote, the, the, in parentheses, the, the munafiqun, which are broad different categories or different categories of munafiqun, but that I remember I've talked to you about Part of the polemics is the insistence that if Muhammad was a legitimate prophet, Muhammad would simply confirm and confirm all the previous laws that the Jewish tribes claimed were innate and eternal laws. In other words, these are laws that were not decreed for the Israelites, but these are the laws of divinity, of God the divine, and they claim that these laws were the laws going back all the way to Ibrahim. And we encountered this claim before, and, but if you pause for a second, and you think about, Surah An-Nisa tells us a lot about the law and how we should deal with the law. And here, the, the, the laws that the Jews insist are laws that are valid, that if it, the laws decreed to the Israelites, but that any people worthy of God would have the same laws, that these laws, in fact, uh, predate Israel himself and go all the way back to, to Ibrahim because, like the Sabbath, that these laws are the laws of an unchanging and unwavering God. A true God would always honor the Sabbath. You can never have a God that would say the Sabbaths are for the Israelites and Friday, Muslims should pray Friday but should not honor the Sabbath. Because that is what Muslims effectively were telling Jews and Christians, is you have your own laws Follow your own laws. The laws that God sent for you are good for you, but they're not good for us. What problematic does this raise about the law? Nowadays, in our modern minds, we take this idea of pluralist realities for granted. But especially for the Karaite Jews, and the Christians of Arabia, whether they belong to the exiled Coptic church, which were not many in Arabia itself, or they belonged to the churches of Byzantia and their offshoots in Arabia. Truth is one. 
an unvaried, an unvariable. Remember that at this point, the, the idea of you know live and let be and paying the jizya is uniquely Islamic. It doesn't exist in Christianity and Judaism at all and will not exist for centuries to come. And so the very idea of the relationship of God, law, and humanity is at stake. And they're raising a powerful dogmatic, but also, to use the terminology, a thoroughly puritanical point. The law is the law and it doesn't change because God is God and God doesn't change. And to this, God responds and says, well, the law that you were given were specific to you because of what you did with the covenant. And the way you honored the covenant or betrayed the covenant There's a theological point, but the more interesting point in the context of Surah An-Nisa is it is absolutely not true that just because the law comes from God, that God is eternal and immutable and unchanging. But that does not necessarily mean that God's act or God's speech or God's kalima or God's law is similarly immutable and unchanging. This was a, a huge point in context, although, of course, in our modern minds, we sort of take, we, we, we don't, a lot of times we don't, because we don't think very deeply about these things, they come back and haunt us. You know, just even the zakah thing is an example. You know, whether you, how you think about the nature of God's law, the nature of God's speech, the, the dynamics of incrementalism in Revelation, this was embodied in, in Islamic history in the huge controversy controversy between whether the Quran is makhluk or ghayr makhluk. But that was, that had all types of various political, it concealed or it was a vehicle for many other controversies. But the, the philosophical and jurisprudential issue remains the same. The relationship between revelation and change and changing human conditions. Okay. The other thing that I should comment on just because um, is 157 where The, the Jews say the, the, um, that however they, the, the, the Quran is referring to, the Jews are saying that they killed Jesus. 
And the Quran responds, they did not slay them, slay him, and neither did they crucify him, but he only seemed to them as if it had been so. And verily those who, who hold conflicting views thereon are indeed confused, having no real knowledge thereof and following mere conjecture. وَقَوْلِهِمْ إِنَّ قَتَلْنَا الْمَسِيحَ عِيسَى بْنَ وَرْيَمْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ وَمَا قَتَلُوهُ وَمَا صَلَبُوهُ وَلَكِنْ شُبِّهَا لَهُمْ وَإِنَّ الَّذِينَ اخْتَلَفُوا فِيهِ لَفِي شَكٍّ مِنْهِ مَا لَهُمْ مِنْهِ مِنْ عِلْمِ إِلَّا اتِّبَاعَ الظَّنِّ وَمَا قَتَلُوهُ يَقِينًا بَلْ رَفَعَهُ اللَّهُ إِلَيْهِ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَزِيزًا حَكِيمًا um, Among the polemics, and it's, it's interesting because, of course, it's very different than the polemics of... Um, The, the polemics of, of Jewish theology today, but the, the, the point that, well, if Jesus, the reason that the polemics of Jewish tribes saying we've killed Jesus is a, attached to another point. If Jesus was a real prophet of God, as you Muslims claim, because their issue now is with Muslims, not even with Christians, then how could it be that Allah enabled us to capture this man and crucify this man and kill this man? Doesn't this prove that, in fact, he was not an apostle, he was not a messiah, he was not a prophet, he was none of the things that you Muslims claim he is? And the Quranic response to this is to say, well, you didn't really kill him, and you didn't really crucify him. And in fact, you only think you did. As you know, the traditional Muslim perspective is that, you know, then you get, we've talked about this before, you get all these reports about, oh, there, God created, there was someone who looked exactly like him, or someone volunteered to sort of... Uh, be transformed into uh, uh, the uh, identical replica of Jesus to be crucified in his place. And we, we've talked about the, the, the before, but the, the, the problem with these narratives about someone else, because for one thing, all of them are narrated from traditions that are far from reliable. All the narratives that say that there was a shabah lil Masih salam, someone who looked exactly like him, or Jesus said, "Okay, who will volunteer?" And then such and such stepped up, and then Jesus said, made them look exactly like him. And then you, other than the 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 isnad issue, the transmission issue, there is also a moral issue. Why would someone suffer in, in, if, in fact, Allah wanted uh, Jesus to suffer? Why would someone be made to suffer in his place? You get even some worse narratives that, you know, they grabbed someone by mistake and they crucified them and, and apparently Jesus and his apostles stood by and did nothing to to correct the error, I mean, it's all quite problematic. Uh, there is a minority 
now extinct perspective in the Islamic tradition that agreed with a now extinct perspective in the Christian tradition that the crucifixion itself is entirely apocryphal. That neither Jesus nor anyone at the time like Jesus was crucified and that it was an entire an, an, an entirely invented uh, and I believe if my memory serves me right, Muhammad Assad is a follower of that perspective. Am I right? Do you know if I'm right? Yeah, okay, so this is Muhammad Assad. Muhammad Assad. Um, it says, um, it says, uh, um, the story of crucifixion as such has been succinctly explained in the Quranic phrase, walakin shubbiha lahum, which I render, but is only so forth, so forth. Then he says, implying that in the course of time, long after the time of Jesus, a legend has somehow grown up, possibly under the then powerful influence of Mercerositic beliefs, to the effect that he had died on the cross in order to atone for the original sin with which mankind is allegedly burdened. And this legend became so firmly established among the later dead followers of Jesus that even his enemies, the Jews, began to believe it, albeit in derogatory sense. For crucifixion was in those times a heinous form of death penalty reserved for the lowest of criminals. This, to my mind, is the only satisfactory explanation of what I can show be alone. So, I mean, I guess it's not clear, but it, it gives me the impression that he's sympathetic to that view that it, it was the entire crucifixion incident. I mean, and it, it was one of the original Christian sects that completely disappeared. Personally, uh, I, I'll just repeat what I said before. I think walakin shubbiha lahum is allegorical uh, in the sense that you could think you are torturing my body. You could think that you are murdering me. But my reality was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the real reality. In other words, if Allah lifts my soul where I can see my body being tortured by feel nothing, and if Allah lifts me, so you think you've killed me, but in fact I, I, I continue to live as a martyr, isn't that shubbi halam? You've imagined it. You've, it's like I've, I've seen this a million times in, in political prisons where, you know, a martyr or comes to a point, even under extreme torture, and will smile and say, I know I'm leaving and I feel nothing anymore. And it was in remarkable sense of victory and you know that Allah's blessing has just come down to lift this human being who, and absolutely, the, the, these people who are torturing the, the prisoner or murdering the prisoner think they're doing it, but it's an illusion. They're neither, they, that person is not in his body anymore. And Allahu Alam. I mean, I've, I'm. It's one of those issues that if 
if someone comes along that can persuade me otherwise, I'll happily change my mind because it's, in my mind at least, it's not clear and it's open-ended. It's Maghrib now, so we'll stop to break fast and to um, pray Maghrib and come back, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay. So as you see in one sixth in, in well so first there is the Quranic statement in, in one fifty seven about the crucifixion. One of the uh, uh, ayat in the Quran that has I mean, it, it, um, there, there's a bit a lot written about it, is 159. That if we look at the translation of 159, Yet there is not one of the followers of earlier revelations who does not, at the moment of death, grasp the truth about Jesus. And the day of resurrection, he himself, i.e. Jesus, shall bear witness to the truth against them. So the second part is clear that Jesus himself, um, but the, the part that has... Um, is that the statement that not one of them that they will all believe or they will all come to know the truth before death. And, you know, some have, especially in the Sufi tradition, have chosen very um, metaphorical interpretations um, others have said that believers in the Trinity, when they're that right after their soul is taken, they will know the truth of the that the that the belief in the Trinity is false. How they'll know? Uh, all the reports that have been transmitted on this, none of them are of a high reliability, so you can't really count. You know, there are reports that tell you they're going to uh, such and such angel will appear, and then such and such angel will say this, and then the uh, the believer in Trinity will say this, and then. But none of these are, uh, from an isnad perspective, something that we can rely on. It's not clear. And they, they, uh, I, I don't think anyone can can claim that they really know what precisely what this ayah refers to, but that once we step into a different reality, then the reality of this material world, once we traverse this plane into the other plane, for a Muslim. A Muslim believes that 
the unity of Allah, the oneness of Allah, the truth of Allah will become plainly clear to everyone. And I think that that's what it really refers to, is al-wahdaniyya, you know, al-wahdaniyya, which is an over-compassing reality in existence, beyond the plane of the material world uh, in which we dwell, um, the entire universe is entirely contingent on Wahdaniyatullah. And it, it pervades everything, and it is in, in everything, and it is undeniable. In the same way that it is undeniable to plants, to mountains, to animals, to birds, uh, how they are cognizant of it, we don't know. Because we human beings, have, we're, we're cognizant only through choice. And that has its benefits and its liabilities. But anyway, okay. And then after that is the statement that In, as Surah Al-Baqarah did, and we talked already about Surah Al-Baqarah, obviously, but that the the pointing out to the Jewish tribes that you're, you want to ignore in the in interacting with history and interacting with law your own role in your evolution was God's will. The fact is that in the role that you played in dealing with the divine will, that many of the laws the, the the dietary laws, the restrictive laws that in fact came to you Israelites was in direct response to your historical experience that was not always just. Remember that both in Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Al-Nisa one of the main objections that the Quran has about the, the evolution of Israelite law is that they allowed, when dealing with, with non-Israelites, that they allowed uh, they allowed prohibited transactions that would be otherwise prohibited. That transactions that would be prohibited in dealing with fellow Israelites but would be allowed in dealing with non-Israelites. And remember that the Quran condemns that. And so, and then followed this is the statement, the exception, as every time the Quran criticizes non-Muslims, 
you will always find every time the Quran does this, the Quran is careful to point out that this does not encompass all of them. That among them who in fact believe and do good, that they have their own deal with Allah. That, and I think it is undeniable for any real student of the Quran, it, it is only true pig-headedness that would lead a student of the Quran to say that only Muslims are promised salvation. It is, you, it, 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 I think the text of the Quran is, is quite clear that it is Allah's business, number one, but number two, that there are, there are a level of morality and goodness that other than Muslims can be can engage in that would lead to salvation their salvation. What precisely I don't think you or I know. But it is again important that here is you get in 162 the exception, except for those in the Arrasikhuna fil ilm, those who are deeply anchored in knowledge and engage in all the ethical behavior that proper Muslims engage in. The, the reason I'm, I'm not just passing over this material is, remember that everything the Quran says to, the, to Christians or Jews, yes, it's speaking to Christians and Jews, but it is also a priori speaking to Muslims. When it warns us about the failures of previous people and previous nations, these are warnings to us. So when it says, that they have dealt in riba and they have engaged in the type of financial ethics that are not equitable and not moral. And remember in Surah An-Nisa that it even tells us that even consensual contracts of adhesion or consensual contracts of exploitation are prohibited. So what is the status of Muslims today when they have engaged in the same behavior that they are warned, in, warned about? You can't deal with the law without thinking about because if if you are aware that the moral failure of your own people today is reaches the level of breaking the covenant with God, then that orients the way you give priorities to legal um, objectives, what legal objectives you give priorities to in order to restore the equitable covenant before else, all else. Put it bluntly, it is mind-numbing to me that if we realize that 
our historical failures have reached the point of a breach of covenant with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, similar to the breach of covenant that the Israelites had with Allah, that for us to be giving priority to the periphery, peripheral issues, to marginal issues, to even talking about them, it blows my mind because it shows that you don't, you haven't understood what the Quran is saying about history and law, and about the way Allah, the way Allah wants you to interact with divine law and the role of divine law. Okay. Um, I will. Okay, yeah. 166. I'll just want to flag 166 that there is a narration uh, that is often reported in the context of uh, Ayah 166 that um, I, whether it is, is it, it is in fact historical or not, I'm, I'm not sure. I, but but nevertheless, I think you'll get the point, um, is that in the, the Prophet is said to have been uh, accosted or stopped or he was on his way someplace and then a, a Jewish, um, a, a group of, um, from, uh, from a Jewish tribe, I don't remember which tribe it was, stopped him. And they started saying the same things about, you know, if you're a real prophet, Moses had the Ten Commandments revealed to him in one full swoop. Um, why doesn't God just give you the divine writ all in one full swoop, etc., etc.? And that the argument goes back and forth, um, and that the Prophet ﷺ says to them at one point, this is the part that I'm, I'm suspicious about, that you know that I am Allah's Prophet. It, it's just not consistent with the Prophet's personality to say something like that, to say to someone, you know that I am a Prophet. Anyway, and that, وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ شَهِيدًا What Ayah 166 says, that it suffices that Allah witness is the witness to truth. The reason I'm flagging this because it is an important ethic that when I was being grazed, every teacher worth the name would constantly tell us it doesn't matter whether people recognize your value, recognize your worth, recognize your knowledge, it only matters what Allah's testimony would be as to your truth. Whether Allah knows that you're really knowledgeable, whether Allah knows that you are truly this or that. 
And this becomes a, a, a problem that it's very it, it, it's thoroughly defeating if your relationship to the truth is contingent on the testimony of human beings. So if people stop believing in what is right, your belief in what is right becomes shaken and uprooted. Uh, this is what a lot of Muslims are experiencing now because of Islamophobia and so on. If, if your relationship to the truth is never dependent on public perceptions or habits or traditions and so on, it becomes a very different dynamic. Okay. The other thing that I should, yeah, um, um, okay. Notice. When Allah, and this is in 171, Allah is talking about Jesus and says, Isa ibn Maryam, Rasulullah wa kalimatuhu wa alqaha ila Maryam wa ruhun minh. That, here I just want to come, uh, pause briefly uh, on the idea of ruhun minh, which in biblical sources are is translated as ghost or holy ghost, mistranslated, I should say. But anyway, so let's look at the um, Christ, Jesus, son of Mary, was but God's apostle, the fulfillment of God's promise which God had conveyed unto Miriam, and a soul created, Muhammad Asa translated, a soul created by God. Um, in Muslim Christian polemics, and even among evangelicals today, the all the evangelical organizations that are dedicated to converting Muslims, they'll, among the things they'll tell you is, or you read in their literature, well, even the Quran admits that Jesus was, had God, was, had the divine spirit in him, ruhun min, had the Holy Ghost. And so how could it be that then the Quran denies the Trinity? Isn't that contradictory? Um, in Arabic language, anything that displayed what was considered exceptional in, in, in our modern Western language, paranormal, anything that 
what displayed paranormal, a breach of the laws of nature. Izhar Ajayub al-Umur would be described as a ruh. The word ruh, its origin is not spirit or soul or ghost. It is anything that is exceptional or paranormal. And even pre-Islamic times, whatever was uruh in the sense of paranormal or exceptional would, while Arabs did not know who Allah precisely was, and many of them thought of Allah as a disinterested God who can only be approached through the mediums of uh, idols and so on, uh, in the same way that you, best way that you, to understand it, like the word na'ma. Na'ma means a blessing, like a blessing. But na'ma, the, the assumption is that any na'ma is to be attributed to Allah. So any na'ma is then described as na'ma min Allah, from Allah. Ruh was the same thing. Any paranormal, exceptional thing would be described as ruh min Allah. It's, it, it necessarily comes from God. So ruhun min, it linguistically simply means a miracle from God. So the, the whole, I, I've met some modern Muslims that come and say, you know, oh, they you know, exposed to evangelical literature or, um, you know, had a discussion. Well, how, you know, the answer to this issue about Ruhun min Allah, isn't it true that Surah Al-Nisa says that Jesus is Ruhun min Allah, and, you know, and, and they're, they're so discombobulated by it. it it's not actually, a, it's not even a, the, the point is, is that it's just saying he is a miracle from God. And, and that's the way you say it. Okay. Okay, now notice. Surah Al-Nisa appears to close. And this is one of the most remarkable things about, about Surah Al-Nisa. It appears to close by telling you, Ya ayyuhal nas, qad jaakum burhanun min rabbikum, wa anzanna ilaykum nuran mubina. People, all humanity, not just Muslims, all humanity, understand that what Allah has given you is nothing less, no less than light that illuminates your path. فَأَمَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَأَعْتَصَمُوا بِهِ فَسَيُدْخِلْهُمْ فِي رَحْمَةٍ مِّنْهُ وَفَضْلٍ وَيَهْدِيهِمْ إِلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمًا And that part and parcel of this light is the essential concept that the Qur'an harkens back to time and time again, the straight path, the straight path, the ethically, morally righteous path. The best way to translate the straight path, or صِرَاطِ مُسْتَقِيمٍ, is a morally righteous path. The difference between a Muslim life and a non-Muslim life 
is not the is not the technicalities of the law, is not the observance of the technicalities of the Sabbath, or the way that Jewish law was, but it is the moral law that you live immorally righteous, morally engaged life. But then, right as you're thinking, okay, so the conclusion of it is that pay attention because you've been given what is nothing less than illumination and enlightenment. Then comes this ayah 176 that comes back and says, now they're asking you about Kalala. And if you're paying attention, you say, wait, why? Okay, so we now, we've talked about the hypocrites, we've talked about the relationship between the hypocrites and the Christians and Jews, we we even responded to some of the polemics of Christians and Jews, and then the the, the re-emphasis that this is a light from God, and then the way the surah closes, it's as if, the ayah is misplaced or as if something else should follow because it's it the, the very last ayah says, and they ask you. So, and we encountered that form. They ask you before. And we've encountered it at the beginning of Surah An-Nisa that they come and ask you and Allah is responding. So why is it at the end? I'm going to answer this in the context of giving you the summary to Surah An-Nisa. Okay, hold on to your hats because this is going to be something of a tornado. Hold on to your boots, to your hats. This is an an overview of Surah An-Nisa probably one of the most involved surahs of the the Quran. (laughs) If I wanted to summarize Surah Nisa, if you take, if you pause and you take a step back, and especially if you memorize or attempt to memorize Surah An-Nisa and you try to, some people memorize by just, you know, they, they, they um, if you memorize through comprehension of the structure of the Surah itself. So Surah An-Nisa opens up was that you are all min nafsin wahida. You are all from a single soul. You are one and the same. This is critical for the moral project of Surat al-Nisa itself. Because whether man or woman, you are from a single soul. All these traditions that come from the biblical from the biblical influence about the the soul of the woman is created from the soul of a man all of this is is not supported 
You are all, you all come, whether man or woman, whether poor or rich, whether free or slave, whether orphan or not orphan, all of you are from a single soul. So already, it, it has, it's readying society for its demand to reshuffle society's st structural relationship with rights, it premises it on the understanding that you are all from a single soul. You are all one. You are all equal. And from there, after this, this opening statement, it engages a series of laws in a series of legal reforms in response to actual legal problems that existed in society. So it started out with the issue of polygamy and polygamy in the context of orphans. And although I've gone back and forth you know, I've, I've changed my mind on this matter as I've studied it over the years in many different contexts. But I am now convinced, or at least the position that I've, is that polygamy, it was it, it, not just limited, not just did Islam come and limit the, the number as is traditionally, but the polygamy was seen as a narrow exception to deal with, with and that it is all premised on the morality of equality and consent. That you, you can't practice polygamy and in violation of the ethics that Surah An-Nisa itself teaches you. But quite specifically, the most compelling situation in which polygamy is practiced is to take care of orphans. So, now, the Quran doesn't tell us the ways that society should regulate polygamy or not regulate polygamy. It is telling us how to think about certain institutions, how to think about abuses perpetuated by certain institutions, and how to respond to abuses perpetuated by and not to be dogmatic. So it's not an issue of, well, you know, it just feels that way. But to think through of the rights of all involved. So then it goes from polygamy to the matter of marrying of people from lower castes or lesser castes, marrying slaves, marrying descendants of slaves, and as we, we talked about that in Arab society, the, the idea of marrying the son or daughter of uh, people who are either currently slaves or former slaves was looked upon, was looked down upon, and um, the Quran clearly condemns that it deals with the matter of at-tasarri bin nisa At-tasarri is where you 
you marry women in secret in order to effectively it is legal it was it's thinly legalized prostitution you are marrying women to for to to enjoy them sexually you're paying them but the whole thing is done in secret and without any real system of rights attached to this marriage even if children result from this marriage are not considered legitimate they're not recognized and Surat al-Nisa addresses this matter of al-Tasarrib al-Nisa and basically prohibits it and says that you can only marry marry women by addressing the specific situation that you, you, you can't marry them behind or without the knowledge of their parents, that you have to, you can't marry them without paying them their dowry, you can't marry them in, in the existing abusive uh, abusive practices of the time. It talks specifically also about the dowry of women, the, the, the tendency among uh, Arabs at the time to not to refuse to give women their dowries for families to keep the, the dowry to marry off women and uh, not allow them control of their dowries. And then talks about the problem of, of inheritance, especially the inheritance of abuses, abusive practices when it comes to the inheritance of orphans. Also, the issue that Aisha tells us that people neglected, that people who would serve for long, long-term long servants in the home who were never given a share of the inheritance, and the Quran comes and says that, no, they must have a share in the inheritance because they were part of the family. Then it moves on to the regulating the another practice that we've talked about and that is when husbands level accusations of sexual impropriety against wives and the the abuses that were committed in husbands when they levels these accusations they often did so for alternative motivations Without any evidence, they would seek to lock up their wives uh, so that they can, it's usually, it have financial motivations behind it. But for the first time coming and requiring that there would be witnesses, otherwise, if there are no witnesses, then there are no criminal penalties. And also addressing another abusive situation, and that is what, Al-Imsak bin Nisa, where you lock a woman in a relationship where you're not giving her any rights, you're not living with her, you are not even, in many cases, not even um, providing for her, but you refuse to let her go unless she um, relinquishes ownership of her money to you. And that was, again, several incidents we know of that in which this happens, and Surat al-Nisa comes and addresses this as well. So you notice the consistent theme is exploitative practices 
quite often that are motivated either by money, mostly money, but to an extent also sex. But as in Ayah 29, this whole program launched into Surah An-Nisa from the opening salvo of you are from one soul to the first 30 ayahs or so until Ayah 29. And Ayah 29 comes and says, listen, you want to understand exploitation even by consent is not permissible. You are not allowed to take advantage of each other, even if you obtain each other's consent. In Islamic law, this is this this is formalized legally into the discussions on contracts of adhesion and, and so on. But beyond the way law crystallizes, there is an ethical norm here, is that just because someone gave their consent because they didn't have a choice, it, that's not going to free you from liability if you know you're taking advantage of a person. Then, it the moral discourse sort of is elevated or, or becomes more it gets to like second gear by reminding us that you, you are all understand that you are one and the same in the same way that the Prophet repeatedly taught us that the, the essence of morality is that you treat others like you want to be treated. The Quran reminds us you must deal with each other in full cognizance of the fact that you are one and the same. That injustice you inflict upon another is an injustice against the self before it's an injustice against the other. You must become aware that if you perpetuate ugliness, You've become ugly. There is no way that you can perpetuate ugliness and somehow maintain yourself pure. And as Ayah 33, then even banning or abrogating the pre-Islamic practice of people promising to be allied to one another for just or unjust causes. And these forms of ahlaf is abrogated. A health has to be only for good. It cannot be for immoral purposes. Okay. Then... Reminding us, الرجال قوامون الرجال قوامون على النساء بما فضل الله بعضهم على بعض. 
that the relationship by between men and women, and we've talked about this, is the whole notion of Qiwama, as we said, which is Qiwama is according to your financial the, the, the your financial ability. And as, because it specifics Wabima and Fakumin Amwalihim that because of that men are in are in the position of caretakers, um, servants, um, but that this relationship, because it was hinged on a contingency, bima anfaku min amwalihim, it is premised on the ethical norm that ba'dukum min ba'd. It is not a matter of who is superior and who is inferior. It is a matter of who is in a position to perform what role under what circumstances. And we've talked about the whole issue of nushus and the, the and as I said, I don't the, the, all the narratives about the the prophet wanting to ban men striking women and uh, uh, the quran allah comes and and wishes otherwise as we've talked about i don't think there 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 is a defense that can be made as to the reliability of these traditions that are highly problematic and i agree with the research that i cited to you that it is talking about specific criminal proceedings for a specific offense that was known to Arabs at the time, the offense of Nashuz. And that it sets out, it is, it's not talking to the, it's not addressing the discretion of a husband or the discretion of a male. It is addressing itself to proceedings that would be instituted by communities, in other words, communal legal proceedings. We've talked about, the, go back to this halaqa because we spent a lot of time um, on it. And the proof of also of that is that right after it talks about the case of nushuz, it talks about shikak. Shikak is disagreement between husband and wife. And in the cases of shikak, disagreement between husband and wife, it doesn't talk about beating and abandoning and bed and all of that. It talks about sending a referee from her side and his side. But in the case of Nishuz, which is a criminal offense and a criminal accusation, it sets out the procedure for that. Okay. Then, after addressing these various social problems, it again, as typical of the style of the Quran, sums up, it's like telling us, you want to understand what type of ethical norm you need to have as your frame of reference in dealing with these problems that I've just addressed, the ethical norm is laid out in 36 and 37 
that the, the ethical norm of Ihsan and the imperative of Ihsan that extends to relatives, to orphans, to the indigent, that extends to neighbors, that extends to remote neighbors, that extends to, and as I said, ma malakat aymanukum is not just uh, those who serve in your household, and it's not just slaves, but even animals that are in your care. So ihsan in everything. As you ponder the law and ponder legal solutions, you must anchor yourself in the imperative norm of, in the imperative of Ihsan. And understand that as you deal with these legal issues, that there is a, a covenant, a serious liability and responsibility, and that is the responsibility of Shahada. You, you, are in a position where Allah demands that you bear witness as to justice and ihsan and Allah and the Prophet in turn will bear witness on you. And as this, and this is not mine, this has been pointed out by, you know, I don't know how many dozens of Muslim scholars throughout Islamic history. What are the requirements of shahada? If Allah says, you must bear witness as to ihsan and justice, what are the requirements of proper witnessing, proper testimony? How can you discharge the obligation of witnessing if you don't understand the concept? Surah An-Nisa has dealt with problems that were unfolding or pro emerging problems, existing problems at the time. Okay? And Surah An-Nisa provided solutions to these problems. If I come today and I bear witness to justice and ihsan by recounting to you examples, stories of the Sahaba from 1400 years ago, and I do nothing more than that. Have I achieved justice or ihsan in any real sense? No. In fact, in order to achieve justice and ihsan in any real sense, you have to study what the problems that existed at the time of Surah An-Nisa were, how did Allah address these problems? What are the moral foundations in the way that Allah resolved the problems? What are the trajectories, moral trajectories that, or moral goals that the solution to the problem seeks to achieve? And then you take this understanding and you apply it to your existing challenges to justice and ihsan. Okay. And after emphasizing 
taking us to. Sorry. After. This anchoring point about Ihsan and Shahada. There is a very alarming warning. And that is what I just recited in prayer. That if you fail to understand your relationship to Shahada and the nature of Ihsan, what is Ihsan? Because when Allah says that Allah loves al muhsineen You know, they're, they're in a different context, in a different time. If I come and I give you a, you know, a, a, a healthy camel, I am being muhsin. But if I come and give it to you today, when a time when you need a car, it's far from ihsan. The, the Ihsan in, has a core, like a, a backbone, that is philosophically coherent, that does not alter. But it is unachievable. That core is eminently corruptible if it's not responding to the real contingencies that exist and the real challenges that exist in a time. So Allah warns that if you fail in your understanding of shahada and ihsan, it is as if you have taken shaitan as your qareen. Lived experience shows that. The ability of well-intentioned people to commit incredible amounts of evil because of ignorance is astounding. I mean, and even pious people, even, you know, people who, who pray and, you know, after the Egyptian revolution, a lot of people were shocked how people that everyone thought was very pious, like Ali Juma, the Mufti of Egypt, former Mufti of Egypt. Uh, how could they legitimate the massacre of people who were massacred while praying Fajr, you know, in their second rakah, and then the army opens the fire and shoots them dead. How could they accept this as this Islamic? And how could they accept the slaughtering of women and children and, you know, and it perpetuates slanderous things like... Uh, Nikah, jihad and nikah, or nikah jihad, or whatever that you know supposedly the the um, the um, the supporters of um, um, the Ikhwan or the Muslim Brotherhood uh, would you know they they were all doing uh, sex marriages uh, as they were hanging out, protesting against the coup. I mean, some really crazy, absurd stuff. 
was people like Ali Goma, did they lose their piety? And I tell you, no. Ali Goma probably would, you know, pray as sincerely as he's always prayed. But his relationship, his, his understanding of justice and ihsan were artificial and flawed. I remember that in one of my conversations with him, he was, he asked me if demonstrations took place in the United States, like the ones that took place against Mubarak, isn't it true that American law would allow the military to slaughter all the demonstrators on the spot? And I told him that it is absolutely not true. He wouldn't, he couldn't believe it. He thought I'm just like, I'm lying to him. He, he couldn't believe that American law would not allow the shooting, the, the shoot to kill on the spot of people that would demonstrate trying to overthrow or, or, or overthrow, because these, he was sort of talking at the time about the demonstrators against Mubarak. And in, you know, it became very, very obvious that the last thing this man has ever read about justice or law or political systems where whatever he encountered in his Sufi texts and he has not read anything about anything that remotely connects with the modern world. This is a failure of shahada. And a failure you will be held to, to responsible. You can't a Muslim, someone who dares to call himself a Muslim jurist in the modern age, you do not have the luxury of existing in the 12th century. You must master the, that's, that. That is why it's so hard. That you must master the 12th century and you have to master the 21st century. No ifs, ands, or buts. Okay, so because otherwise shaitan becomes your qareen. But then Allah at this point takes us to tell us, do you want to understand how so many people end up with shaitan being their qareen? How so many people drift away you see all these abuses that were committed in society against orphans, against women, against the, the, the you know the, all these things that people who thought themselves as honorable were doing to women and children in society. And when Surat al-Nisa came and said, you can't do this anymore, they were resistant. Allah tells us, so how do you get into the situation where shaitan becomes your qareen when you, it's not necessarily that you're a bad human being that sits laughing maniacally at night. It is because as, uh, uh, is it, I think, I'm pretty sure it's 49. 40, 49 says, let me make sure. 
ولا تزكوا انفسكم تزكيه النفس الم ترى الى الذين يزكون انفسهم بل الله يزكي من يشاء that those who instead of being critical of the self they commend and elevate the self they 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 have a nearly irrebuttable presumption that i am fine not just i am fine but i am even perhaps wonderful because look i do what i deem to be good yeah maybe i treat my wife like garbage maybe i take advantage of orphans maybe i treat my children like garbage i i know men that i've even worked with i mean even a former colleague who's absolutely horrific to his poor daughters his poor daughters i as i feared were just had a lot of problems when they grew up he really messed up their life but he was one of the sweetest people that you could possibly deal with at work he thought of himself as a wonderful human being because he only looked at what good he does but he didn't notice the suffering he was inflicting on the women in his life and surah an-nisa then comes and tells us you know tazkiyat an-nafs is part and parcel of believing in egypt and taghut egypt and taghut remember that egypt and taghut is taking masters other than god unto yourself taghut is this master of this master of oppression and ugliness any master in your life other than god is a taghut whether that master is a king a job a career a position prestige whatever it is if it dominates you if it it controls you if it defines you then it has become jibt and taghut in your life look in our modern day and age this this actually you know makes me sad it's, it, but do you know that in muslim dating apps which I'm an expert on obviously <laughs> muslim dating apps all the all these you know women what they're looking for are men of careers prestige jobs salaries and the way they list piety and akhlaq is so artificial you could tell that they don't really mean it jibt on taghut yes taghut you you define who your masters in life are okay now then it takes you 
from this understanding of how okay so how how did we how do we end drifting away from and that you are all from the same you are all the same and you, how do we lose sight of that how do we get to the point where we have shaitan as our kareen where we go from shaitan as our kareen because we are we are uh, 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 and from that we end up being entrapped by Egypt that we end up effectively having masters other than Allah that we respond to and At where is it? Um, yeah. At fifty-eight. So you want a practical? This is from Hamid al-Ghazali who uh, makes this point that you want to have. I, I forgot the word he uses, but. Basically, you want a way to test the extent to which Egypt on Tarut has infiltrated in your life. Look at what is your relationship to an amana and adl. Remember, Inna Allah ya'murukum an tu'addu al-amanati ila ahliha. Amana is what you are entrusted with. And remember what we said about this, that it is an entire philosophy because the money that Allah blesses we, you with, that Allah, Allah knows that you owe to an indigent person is an amana. The knowledge that you hold in your heart that you dispense or don't dispense is an amana. Your medical knowledge is an amana. Your legal knowledge is an amana. Everything that you, the system of rights and obligations between human beings, these are all amanat. So Allah, the, Allah's imperative, normative, normative demand is that you understand who is owed what and that you discharge what you owe people justly and fairly and that you understand and achieve that you judge justly This, as we know, in Surah An-Nisa, Allah after will even elevate, will even heighten, and to tell us that not just you just you you rule justly, but your sense of justice is so fearless that you uphold justice even if it is against yourself. But 
But then one of the most remarkable things about Surah An-Nisa, remember that Surah An-Nisa, that in the Quran elsewhere, fully, Allah fully tells us or alerts us that when our rulers are corrupt, when our rulers are like Fir'aun, when our rulers are of the type who say, La urikum illa ma ara, that you're only allowed to, to understand or believe what I want you to understand and believe. In a word, when our rulers are tahut, that's a huge problem. Because our if the rulers themselves control a people and they are not committed to justice or morality, you will end up with the type of society that Surat al-Nisa was fixing. A society full of abuses and injustice. How so? Well, look. Look at what comes right after Allah talking to us about discharging trusts and justice. Allah comes and says, okay, your obligation is to obey God and obey the Prophet and those who are those who are amongst you, minkum, most as we talked about at the time, that most scholars, you know, most said that this refers not to rulers but to scholars, which I don't agree with. But anyway, and the others said rulers. But the the critical thing, in my opinion, is that it says minkum, and it is followed that judgment doesn't belong to the rulers. Minkum means, as we talked about, those who truly are your rulers voluntarily and, and fairly. In other words, they are they actually represent you. They are not there oppressing you, but they are actually an expression of you. And that in all cases, that if there is tanazo, if you disagree with those who represent you over anything, the, the, diff, the judge between you is Allah's law. Not Allah's law as to whether they apply ahkam al-miras or the technical. Allah's morally righteous law. So if they are not, for instance, upholding justice, if they are allowing the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer, if they are allowing people to starve to death, if they are allowing children, street children to be trafficked and to be uh, their organs harvest, harvested and to be sexually assaulted, God's law is clear. That, that's a tahakum. That, that if there is, in other words, if if you get confused about anything as to where, 
how things should be between those and those who are in charge amongst you, then the moral law, the frame of reference, is God's moral law. And a warning, Adam ittahakum ila tahut. Don't, don't you dare surrender to Tahut. Clear, I mean, how could Muslims have become overcome with despotism? I, I, for my life, I don't understand it. It's so clear that whatever you do, don't you dare in your relationship with those who rule you. Surrender yourself to Tahut. What is Tahut other than oppression and injustice? What does Surah Al-Baqarah say, right? That either you are you ally yourself with Allah or you ally yourself with Tahut. This is this is right after Ayat Kursi, right? Okay. Um So, what I'm underscoring here is it is like a, a it's like a, a you could call it like a symphony you could call it like a coherent narrative that takes you from one point to the other. It started out you are all from one, and then it went to specific specific legal reforms. Then it went to explaining to you why you ended up how human beings, not you as a Muslim community, but how human beings end up perpetuating these, these types of injustices and what is needed for them to avoid these types of injustices, walking step by step with you until it comes to the point of who is in command in your society. What is the quality of your rulers? Are they people of Tahut or people who understand what God's law is? And it is forward-looking because it is at the time that the Prophet ﷺ is alive. But yet, it for the for the uh, for the people who are the Arabs at the time, Arabs and non-Arabs, for them to break with their leaders especially their leaders who are unhappy about the reforms and have formed an opposition party to the Prophet ﷺ, they must reflect upon the moral qualities of their leaders and recognize that their leaders are guiding them towards tahut. Only if they do that will they be able to break away and follow the Prophet. These are human beings, like any human beings. And you want social approval. And they are in the Ansar, and you look at your some tribes, like the tri- like the people who were surrounding Abdullah ibn Ubay, breaking ranks with your friends and your family and the people who are in charge who are telling you, what is this? You know, when are all the sacrifices going to stop that we have to keep giving this man? And now we have to put our women in charge, and now the orphans are going, and all the things that we've talked about, you have to be able to break away. 
But you can't break away unless you can think independently. So then comes what I consider to be the pulsating heart of Surah An-Nisa. You want to understand what all of this is about? All of this meaning all the legal, moral, ethical project. In fact, all, the, all those people who are whining and complaining about why are we fighting? Why can't we make nice? Why? It is about standing by al-mustadafin. It is about that there are people who are disempowered. In my view, it is inviting you to reflect not just about the disempowered who remained in Mecca, obviously, or the disempowered who became Muslims are in it, but every form of disempowerment. The slaves who are abused because of this, their disempowerment. Women who are disempowered. Orphans are disempowered. Young people from clans are not prestigious who are disempowered. Allah's moral law to those who are themselves not disempowered is you have to help the disempowered. As to the disempowered themselves, Allah's moral law is resistance. Resistance, either change your circumstance by leaving the hijrah, removing yourselves from situations of disempowerment, leaving relationships in which you are disempowered. These are immoral relationships. This, as Muhammad Ghazali, rahmatullah alayhi, my, my teacher, used to say, this works at the communal level and at the individual level. If you are in a job in which you are disempowered and abused, your hijra is to try to find a different situation for yourself. If you are in a family in which you are abused, your hijra is to try to remove yourself from this relationship of disempowerment. To the disempowered is resistance through hijra if possible, but if, if for uh, uh, resistance through hijra or otherwise, but the heavy responsibility that it, it, it makes very clear is those of you who Allah has blessed by putting them in situations that they are not suffering this disempowerment, you are obligated to help. And as you recall, then, that we, we, we spoke at length that part of this is who, the, the, the sort of the, the, the specific laws as to fighting. So even, you know, even when you want to fight to help the disempowered, 
It is not a gun-ho attitude like Rambo in action. You just go off and you fight everyone that you meet. But again, you're discerning because some of the people that might actually feed the relationships of disempowerment are actually not your enemies. I mean, you you can solve, you can neutralize them, you can convince them not to be a part of the equation of istadaf and nas of oppressing people uh, through means that don't involve warfare, and if that's the case, then that has to be the priority. So it's like you know you're not just out there fighting with anyone, but you are again moral discernment, even in your rebellion against immoral situation. And at this point. While the first part of Surat al-Nisa, it it addressed to us how, why did people end up in the type of ugliness that Surat al-Nisa was addressing. The second half starts talking about why do people, who are the people that resist change, resist reform. And the way that it dissects and lays out the, the, the characteristics of these people. So first, it's very clear in that it wants us to understand because this is very, that if that whoever you, if the example that you present is one of ihsan, of goodness, then what follows from that, the consequences of a good moral example is to your credit. And the opposite is true because quite often those who resist that very simple idea they refuse to confront the reality that what they do matters. They are setting precedents. So they think, well, why, you know, I, it's the exceptionalism. Every person who is among the, the vast majority of the munafiqun are not munafiqun because they, they are determined to be munafiqun but because they think of themselves as exceptions to the moral reform. Well, you know, my orphan, my story, because that's exactly what they would do with the Prophet, <laughs> they would come to him and say, let me tell you, my, you know, it, it, it's like the man we talked about who had the blind orphan girl that supposedly was ugly. You know, oh, but even if she's blind and ugly, I have to give her her inheritance? That was the attitude, that notion of exceptionalism. I'm different. No, you're not. If you actually reflect, you'll see that you're not any different from all the people that you think you're different from. Moreover, the nature of those people who resist reform is that 
meaning that they are people whose constitution is not to respond to real knowledge. They respond to mere uh, uh, rumors. And so in other words, often those who resist reform, they, do you know, the thing that brings it closer, to, at least to my mind, I, I, often those people who go off imagining a world of fake news, right? But they themselves live in a very fake world. The, the, the way that you often resist treating people justly and morally is to imagine all types of conspiracies and plots and plans that are going on that the net result of which, well, it's not really important how I treat children or women or because there are, you know, I'm engaged in much more grand issues. And this is the, uh, around 83, I think it was 83. Um, yeah. That if they, they are constantly reacting to fantastical stories, they, they, they are, the humility it takes to go to the people who actually are really in the know and to base yourself on real information rather than the fantasies that justify your resistance to reform. Okay. That ultimately they are people who are wishy-washy, non-committal, or kisuful fitna, that this process of that they get the courage to do what's right only for a short period of time, they fundamentally they have an inner cowardliness that emerges from a deep sense of greed and selfishness. They are all about themselves and nothing but themselves. Okay. Now, then Surah An-Nisa, still on the related issue of Al-Munafiqoon and their resistance, is going to warn us about some of the ways that nifaq itself, hypocrisy or the, the, the um, failure to live, to, to rise or failure to uphold moral uprightness can produce truly immoral conditions. So, first we're warned about 
how easy it is for the hypocritical and cowardly heart to justify spilling the blood of an innocent human being. And Allah warns us that the killing of an innocent Muslim, because quite often you're going to kill an innocent Muslim not because you want to kill an innocent Muslim, but because you're told to kill an innocent Muslim and you don't have the moral courage to say no or to suffer the consequences. Because sometimes you, you can't kill an innocent Muslim even, even if the consequences is that you have to sacrifice yourself. Even if I'm going to be executed as a result. But I can't prefer my life over the life of a Muslim. So, and remember what Allah says about those who kill an innocent human being. They are cursed, doomed to hellfire, Allah's anger. It, one of the key, I mean, of course, it, this was alluding to a historical reality, is that some of the Muslims who, in fact, were too weak to make a stand ended up serving in the... But, but I think the historical incident is precisely that, incidental to the message. The message is you, you want to understand the extent to which a, 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 a we call it, we call, keep saying nifaq as hypocrisy, but it is the, the failure to be morally upright. What it could result in, it could reduce, result in the most foul and evil act of killing innocents. Second, it could result in zulm nafs that you live, you accept situations of oppression and you allow situations of oppression to perpetuate themselves and you philosophize these situations of oppression. But third, that as you commit immoral acts, like you killed innocent people, as you accept oppression and philosophize situations of oppression, ultimately, one of the most that you start arguing on behalf of injustice, that you start arguing on behalf of the unjust, justifying their injustice, philosophizing their injustice. And the problem is that in the philosophizing of injustice, the apologetics of injustice. It's like, it's like nowadays, how many times I hear Egyptians say, and this is not just Egyptians, this is all oppressed people. Oh, you know, yeah, sure, the, there's a lot of, you know, there are rapes in Egyptian prisons, there are torture, there's mass killings, there are executions, so on and so forth. But, you know, 
the Egyptian people, their nature is that they, this is the only way they can really be ruled. It, they need a strong man. It doesn't matter how unjust the strong man is because if, if they ever have anything but a dictator and a brutal dictator at that, uh, they, wouldn't, they, they would just, I don't know, you know, mess up their lives completely. Now, an earmark of, 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 of the apologetics of injustice is that inevitably it will involve accusing innocent people. And remember what Surah An-Nisa tells us about the, the, the disaster or the, the, the enormous moral failure of committing a wrong and attributing, it, attributing that wrong to innocence. And that ultimately, what you end up with is a relationship towards Allah and his prophet that of shikak that you if what everything that you represent is in effect a contradiction of the antithetical of of what Allah and his prophet stands for. These are extremely dire warnings and they go, this is why it's it's like a moral journey that it goes from, and they're all interconnected links that if, so for instance, if you come to, my problem is taskiyat al-nafs. I tend to be arrogant and think that I am very important. Well, the likelihood is that you will end up end up invoking all the other links from Tazkiyat al-Nafs to living in Taghut to becoming uh, to uh, the apologetics of injustice to all the other. It, it, they're all interconnected links. One leads to the other. Okay. Now, here, taking us from these general principles, with Sort of what what I think is also is that remember the tuhuyan and hypocrisy and um, arrogance would, and I think we've seen this proof of this in our own modern life. That and this is a side note, but I've talked about it. That it will inevitably result in in taghir khalqillah, corrupting Allah's creation. The, 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 the um, what is the word I'm looking for? Defiling? 
defiling Allah's creation. Human arrogance and human tuhyan and humans, when humans surrender their moral obligations when they think in the in terms of their relationship to existence, um, they don't just defile other human beings or living things. They can defile creation itself. And that is exactly why it is very important to understand that morality is not a matter of apologetics or status or laysa bi amanikum wala amani ahli kitab and it's not it, it, that the it is a conscientious like a sirat mustaqim the conscientious moral uprightness if you understand anything about quranic morality is that Quran is not about flag waving of flags or my team versus your team. Allah consistently comes back and it says, and Allah says, what is your relationship to moral substance? Not to your amani, not to your wishes or your declarations. Uh, well, I'm Muslim, so I'm supposed to be superior in the following ways okay now then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes back and says after going through these moral it's as if lest you are going to forget that this is about practical results how the law ends up producing concrete results in 135, Allah says, and they are asking you about women. Now, of course, what they're asking is, as, we're, as we've talked about, no, um, is it 135? No. Uh, it, it, no, sorry, 127, I think. Yeah, 127. That... So we are still in the same moral project because it turns out that the question that the Quran is dealing with again has to deal has to do with disempowered categories of people women and children who are disempowered okay It is, so the minute, the, the minute Allah it sort of goes to abstract principles, goes back and refocuses the microscope on actual problems, what, it's an, it's like an education in the process of engaging the epistemology of justice itself. Thinking from actual problems to general principles back to actual problems again. 
So every general principle must be tested in light of the actual results and actual problems. But every actual problem must be abstracted into a general principle. You can't just, you know, tweak things in very specific ways and say, there we go. Okay. Yeah, you understand. Then it, 135, that refrain that in this dynamic from the specific to the general, it's as if Allah summarizes the whole thing for us by saying, you want to understand what this is all about. You must uphold justice, even if it is against yourself, testifying for God, even if it is against yourself. Uh, I'm worried about the time, but Chief says don't worry about it. So, there's some people here left, so. Sorry. Okay. Now, when telling us uphold justice, even if it's against yourself. Allah alerts us to the hearts of those who are often unable. And again, see from the specific, it, it, like the, the, the camera keeps going forward and backwards. Those who really struggle with the whole process of upholding justice, even if it is against the self, is that They, the, the, the human condition that instead of seeking to understand the message in the way that it is an integrated sirat mustaqim, a, a path of virtue, to do what those who are often weak of faith do, to pick and choose impressionistically. They, if they, by nature and composition, if they care very strongly about, you know, they might, the part that appeals to them the most are things that have to do with laws of women. But they'll ignore, but it, they'll take it out of, you know, basically it is, it is picking and choosing without, so in other words, it's as if Allah is telling us the heart of nifaq, the heart of those who are unable to live in service of qawwamina bil qist 
is those who are fundamentally responding to their self-interest but are not patient or committed enough or diligent enough to understand what this message is about. In other words, to commit to rebelling against Tahut, to commit to justice as a principle, to commit to the principles of equity, to, uh, to commit to the project of empathy. All right. Then it is those who deliberately seek to purify their intentions and to live in the full moral gaze of their Lord. Their path is these are the people that are more likely to resist Tahut, to resist the moral failures that Surat al-Nisa tells us obstructs a human being's relationship with the type of injustices that it identifies. Okay. Then Surah An-Nisa moves on to remind us that morality itself, that there are still, even after Surah Al-Baqarah, there are still those who think that relationship with Allah is about these dogmas that have very little to do with morality and and very and everything to do with either um, historical entitlements or irrational salvational causes like the idea that well you know it, 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 it yeah life uh, uh, God created all human beings but just all that matters is some God sent someone to die for our sins, which is undercuts and undermines moral logic from its very foundations. If, I mean, whether the idea that you are a chosen people and that the law is not in response to actual need or demands but the law is part and parcel of your status as a chosen people, like the law of the Sabbath. It's just the law of the Sabbath as a matter of status. It undermines the moral project or the very idea that, yeah, you know, it, it, life is a test, but although it's a test, 
God sends a son to die for your sins, and that's your salvation. As to everyone else who doesn't accept Jesus, somehow it, it just the entire edifice of morality collapses onto itself. And that is why it, Surah Nisa comes at towards the end and refers to Jews and Christians. It's like saying, you know, it is not an accident that the, that the hypocrites are hanging around Jews and Christians because they don't get it. They don't get what this project is about. They don't even, they, they, I mean, it's an, it's of course ironic because the way Jewish law develops after Islam is there's a revolution in the way Jewish law is understood and interpreted. I believe it is because of Islam that if it hasn't been for Islam, because Jewish law was amazingly static and well into, um, I mean, the, the the occurrence of people like Maimonides was very heavily influenced by Islamic thought. Anyway, that's a different thing. And same thing with the role of Catholicism and it's it it it's it, it took it is not a coincidence that Thomas Aquinas engages Islamic thought throughout his Summa because the the entire moral it, it it took a great deal of reconstruction of Jew, in, in Jewish thought and Christian thought to make engagement with morality possible. It took and I think and I I mean and if you re, if read George Mcnessy, uh, if you're interested in in the that the restructuring in both Judaism and Christianity came in direct response to Islamic polemics against both Christianity and Judaism, which they found, because the, the response before, I mean, the response even in the, in the 10th AD, 9th AD, 10th AD, 11th AD, up to the 12th AD, was... Basically, well, Muslims are demonic. That's it. They're just inspired by the devil. But rational, coherent responses do not start reforming, don't start forming until there is a massive restructuring. Anyway, so that is why Surat al-Nisat circles back or wraps up by its allusion to Jews and Christians. And... Is it's like saying this prophet, this message is about the Surat al Mustaqim, the, the, the path of moral righteousness, and it is not possible. With, and the, the reason that we Allah sent this prophet is because it that path was no longer rationally possible with the other messages that Allah had sent before because of the way that these messages were corrupted. That's why it terrifies me, the way that we've corrupted our message. Then comes this most amazing conclusion, 
was coming back was say yastaftunak qulillahu allahu yuftikum fi kalala al kalala there's an interesting there's an israeli scholar who wrote an entire i think book on on kalala uh, I mean, it's very. He, he, the reason he was fascinated with Kalala because of what Kalala is in Jewish law, and he thought that there has to be a relationship between what the Quran says about Kalala and what Kalala is in Jewish law. Kalala in Arabic is, um, ge- generally speaking, is someone that dies without children to inherit him or her. Or parents, so that the inheritance goes to horizontal family members rather than vertical family members. So why does Surah An-Nisa end this way? I'll tell you what I think. It is, notice how Surah An-Nisa progresses. A principle, narrowing in on specific problems, zooming backwards into general principles, narrowing in on specific problems, zooming back again, and then narrowing in on specifically the role of Jews and Christians and the relationship to hypocrites. The end is the ask you question about yet more problems. It is as if, and I believe it's not, it is in fact Allah saying, and the story continues. The legal, the legal dynamics of inquiry and response is never ending. It's not, the end is not that Allah gave you a message that is illumination and light and khalas, we're done. No, yes, Allah gave you illumination and light, but the challenge is the questions of istiftat will continue. How are you going to solve these problems? The legal issues will continue. Are you going to be able to think through the principles and resolve the challenges in light of the principles? Brilliant, mind-blowing. It is not a coincidence. When when you look at the the categories of people that Surat al-Nisa focused on as example par excellence, of fighting disempowerment, of fighting tahut, fighting injustice, fighting oppression. Who are they? Women, orphans, and people either bond, either people in your service or slaves. But the biggest challenge for society in being able to uphold justice and testify for God even against themselves. It is not a coincidence that Allah is telling us, listen, look, 
husbands go and accuse their wives of sexual improprieties to take advantage of them. Allah comes and puts an end to this and says, no, you need witnesses and regulates us. Husbands are trapping women into these relationships where they're or they that this is half your population. And half of the population is often responsible for all types of children and orphans. You can't, the imperative of thinking morally through all of these situations is at the heart and core of Surah An-Nisa, and that's exactly why it's called Surah An-Nisa. Okay, alhamdulillah, we're done. You guys persevered. May Allah bless you. I'm amazed that some people persevere till the end. Um, unless you really want to summarize. You want to summarize? Okay. What time is it now? 10.30. Yeah, so we went an hour over our normal. Uh, my apologies, but I really needed to, I think we needed to finish the Surah this up. Yeah. Okay. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Mabruk, everybody. Um, we finished Surah Al-Nisa on the first day of Ramadan. That's so awesome. Alhamdulillah. Is Surah Al-Nisa adopted? Yes. Oh, it is? Okay. By Elaine. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yes, Elaine. Okay, she's with us. One of the most important Surah in the Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Okay, so, so summary of a summary. I'll try to make it really fast. But before, actually, before I do, we actually are going to do uh, Tarawiyah prayers, and we will um, live stream if anyone wants to join us. So um, we'll start, inshallah, after Sheikh has a chance to have dinner because he broke fast but has not had dinner yet. Um, and then we will we'll go to Tarawiyah prayers, inshallah. Um, okay, so just to say, I mean, major themes. This is such an incredible surah, such an incredible journey. 11 days, alhamdulillah. Um, but obviously, um, you know, the big things that jump out is, again, starting that we are all from one soul, that it's truly about rights. And, you know, this just gets us into human rights, e equality of rights, um, and, the, and then walking us through moral principles and then examples, um, teaching us the methodology. As you said, you know, you have to master both the 12th century and the 21st century, being able to testify to the truth um, even if it's against ourselves and really um, looking internally and asking ourselves, who is my master? Is my master Allah or is it something else? Is it my ego? Um, truly understanding what are the rights that are owed to others and to ourselves. And that, um, as we talked about in one of the previous halakhas, you could almost distill everything down to this idea of everyone's rights, what's owed, what's, you know, what, what are we doing our, our part? Um, and then the idea of just upholding justice vibrantly and bravely, even if it's against the self, um, using the frame of reference as Allah's law, um, not to surrender to tagut or injustice, um, and ultimately really standing by the disempowered um, in every way, shape, or form, um, if, especially if we are empowered, we must help the disempowered. 
um, to understand the concept of, of hijra, removing the self from situations or relationships of disempowerment, and then um, teaching us about the degrees of hypocrisy um, and you know people who resist reform through um, exceptionalism, cowardliness, selfishness, lack of commitment, um, and that when this happens, we can um, produce foul results, for example, killing innocents, accepting oppression, justifying injustice, and then ultimately arguing in favor of injustice, accusing innocence. It's the whole, all of that is connected to this term you said, apologetics of injustice, which I thought was a really powerful. Um, and the, the idea that um, Quranic morality is about substance, it's not about labels. Um, we had this whole education in the process in of engaging in the epistemology, epistemology, epistemology of justice. So looking abstractly, going in, coming back out, going back in, looking at the specifics, the moral principle, the specific um, problem, referencing back to the Jews and Christians and the people of the book and understanding that Allah sent this message and the prophet because the path of moral righteousness was no longer possible through the messages that were previously sent before. Um, and that this ultimately is you know, the embodiment of a challenge and a demonstration, like Allah is teaching us, here are the challenges, here's how you can address it, um, and telling us at the very end that these questions will continue, and really it's like an invitation for us to continue to engage in this lifelong process of the path. Alhamdulillah, Samir, very sorry. Good. <laughs> okay. You did a very good job, actually. Alhamdulillah, thank you. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for um, being with us for, for this evening, this journey through Surah Nisa and everything. May Allah bless you. Um, and I, I'm, I'm amazed. Um, 11 days. Okay, so I don't know. We'll have to figure out what, what we're going to do about whether we do a Q&A and start a new surah or anything like that. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll let people know. But um, it's one of these things. You're so excited. You've finished this long journey, but then now you're excited about what's the next surah going to be, right? So <laughs> God help me. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so the journey continues. Anyway, happy Ramadan, everybody. Um, inshallah, I hope um, fasting will be amazing. And you know, may we all learn what we need to learn. May we all do what we need to do this Ramadan. May Allah help and guide us all. So thank you. Happy um, rest of the weekend. And inshallah, we'll see you very soon. Assalamu alaikum.